where you and I can connect. It's a show that embraces a 360-degree look at womanhood. It's our voice, our perspective. It's what we care about, and it's how we feel. Empowerment through conversation is what it is. This is Full Circle. Welcome to another edition of Full Circle. I'm your host, Miss Wanda. I'm so excited about today's show. It's one that is near and dear to me because I have grown up writing and have written, as you know, if you listen to the show, have written in a compilation book and am working on my second book. But I have always loved writing and the creative process. And so my guest today is not only is she an author, she is a poet. She is a ghost writer and can help you tell your story. And so much more. She is such a phenomenal woman. I'm so glad she said yes to being on the show today. And she's celebrating a birthday in two more days. So there's that too. So we have to celebrate you. Miss Jacqueline Smithson Howard is here. Let me tell you a little bit about her and then we're going to jump right into the show. So Jacqueline Smithson Howard is a freelance writer from Nashville, Tennessee. She writes about our shared experiences of life and love and has used her stories to uplift others. She does have 17 books to her credit as a poet, writer, storyteller, ghostwriter, contributing author, and publisher. She is a Sacramento Public Library Foundation's author on the move for 2016 and 2019. Her poetry books are in the private collections of the California State Library and the special collections of the Sacramento Public Library. There's so much more in between. I'm going to stop right there, Ms. Jacqueline. I'm going to let you introduce yourself. First of all, let me thank you for being on the show. Good morning to you. Good morning. I'm so happy to have you here. I'm so excited. I don't know what to do. (laughs) I'm like a little kid in a candy store. (laughs) We're going to have a great conversation. I think one of the things is because you love writing so much and talking about writing and even as we were preparing for the show your love for writing and that creative process just shines through in just even in our conversation so I know we're going to have an amazing conversation today so thank you for being here thank you go ahead and introduce yourself to the the full circle family well I tell folks that I am Jacqueline Smithson Howard because when I published my first book I was already divorced and my father had already passed away so I wanted his name on my books so that's why the Smithson is there my maiden name Mm -hmm. but I am a country girl like you said from Nashville Tennessee I still listen to country radio most of the time so Forgive me, 97.5 folks, but (laughs) I'm from Nashville. What can I say? I was born to two parents who most of my friends call mushy because they smooched everywhere. And even when I was grown and they came to visit me in my computer room, my radio was, was on, and my dad looked at my mom and said, Honey, let's dance. And they danced in my cubicle. Oh, I love that. That's where I come from. So when you think of giggle and smooch, that's why I'm known as the giggle and smooch poet, because I feel like the world needs mushy. The world needs to giggle and smooch. And so that's where I come from. And that's where I started writing poetry, because I 
I love to giggle and smooch. <laughs> <laughs> now you you have been writing since you were a small child. I have. I've been writing since I was in the first grade, which was just before I turned four or or just after I turned five. I sat in my first grade classes. My teacher was my dad's oldest sister. My dad is one of ten, but there are seven girls, seven sisters on his side. So when he had three daughters, there was nothing we could do to get away with anything because he had already had seven sisters. You couldn't hide anything. And he was a medic in the Army, so you couldn't tell him anything about your body because he knew everything about girls. But I started writing in Aunt Mary's first grade class, and she used jigsaw puzzles to teach us everything. I thought it was the strangest thing, but it was so much fun. And she had her big voice, and she was a towering figure, but she was the sweetest person in the world. And she would say, okay, class, we are going to do the most exciting thing I've ever wanted to share with anybody as long as we are all in unison. I want you to pick out one of these little wooden puzzles you can have the picture of the boat or the teddy bear or the tiger or the whatever, and you pick it out and put it in front of you, and then you're going to hear my most favorite sound. She said, okay, are you ready? And all the little kids said, yes, Miss Gray Kid. And she would say, okay, turn them over and let all the pieces fall out. And you get and everybody, she said, oh, 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 listen, listen. She would get so excited. And that was first grade. So how could you not be excited about doing anything yeah. around her? And she taught me first and second grade because she said when children first leave their parents, it's hard enough to be away from them during the day. So she wanted to keep them for two years before she moved them to a separate teacher so they would get safe. And that's the way I grew up, always safe and yeah. always around family. I love that. I mean, and just here the way you even the way you told <laughs> that story with so much vibrancy and energy. I want to go back to your family because your family, it sounds like you were a close-knit family. My parents were married for 60 years before my father passed away. And you were surrounded with I have um probably 300, 350 cousins on dad's side. Probably 200 of them are still in Nashville. My mom's side, probably about 200 cousins, and they are mostly all spread out across the country. So I tell my son all the time, you have to tell me who you're dating because you might be related to them. That's yeah. how big the family is. What I like about the way you're telling the story of your family, because the theme of today's show, of course, is the importance of telling your story. The other part of that is documenting your legacy. Yes. And it sounds like your family has created this, your parents created this legacy for you that by virtue of what you witnessed and lived through with them, it was, it seemed easy to document because it sounds like maybe your, was your father a storyteller? Were your parents story, like did they share those stories with you? My father is the storyteller. My mother was a teacher and she taught first and fifth grade. And my father taught high school biology. And they taught us life lessons through storytelling. 
So my father's side of the family, his parents were all storytellers, and, and his mother would point her finger, and she would tell you what to do. And, and you know, when people are pointing their finger at you, that's not the only finger you have. So when I started doing that as a young teenager, my father said, you know, honey, when you point that finger at me, you got three more fingers pointing back at you, which means you got three times as much more stuff to work on your own stuff before you start telling me what you think I need to be doing with mine. And I thought, okay. <laughs> you know. But yeah, they were married for 60 years. I've never heard them raise their voice in anger. I asked about that one time because my friends would say, oh, they just go in their room and shut the door. And my father said, we go in our room and shut the door and we still giggle and smooch. And I said, why? He said, because I married a grown woman. She's entitled to her opinion. She's entitled to disagree with me. And I'm not entitled to tell her that she can't. Now that's an awakening that most people don't have. So we, as children, could say anything, we could ask anything. We are not the children of, go sit down someplace and don't ask any questions. No, we were right in the middle of the conversations with the grown folks. We were discussing religion and politics and all the things you're not supposed to discuss. If we had questions, the grown adult would get down on their knees or sit down on the floor at eye level with us and have the conversation. So that's what I grew up in. I figured I don't have anything to hide. I don't have any question I can't ask or answer, even if the answer is I don't know. And I can tell you anything knowing that you're not gonna hurt me. Doesn't mean I'm not safe or aware of what's going on around me. It means psychologically for me you can't hurt me because you can't do anything to me. I'm covered by my faith and my resolve of where I come from and what I have. Anything you can physically take away from me, it's not going to bother me because I'm not going to have any control over it. I'm not going to walk into a problem without fighting, but I'm not going to worry about small stuff. Man, that sounds like a very well-rounded childhood experience. Yeah, and that gave was, you good foundation, yep. I mean, to be who you are now. Solid to walk ground. walk in that confidence. Solid ground. If you pray, don't worry. If you worry, don't, don't pray. pray. Mm-hmm. So which, one, which side of that what coin you, you want to be on? <laughs> I, I know which side I want to be on. Yeah, so I, I love that. And I don't worry. I love that. I love that childhood experience that you had. When you started writing as a small child, what kind of things would you write? I started with in the classroom with first graders. You know, everybody's giggling and everybody's having whatever fun we were having with Aunt Mary. But there was always the odd child. The uh, It was a public school, and I came from a very... Uh, middle class, well-to-do family, 
But I could tell that there were other kids in the class that didn't have my circumstances, right? They they had lunch pails that didn't look like mine or, or book bags that didn't look like mine or whatever. Everybody makes an assessment based on what you have or what you wear or what your hair looks like. And so I could tell when people were hurting, if other people would pick on them, they would be hurting. And I, for some reason, don't like people hurting around me. So the poems would come, and I didn't know what poems were. I just knew that Aunt Mary was a poet. And she said to me as a little kid, two, three years old, before I started school, you're going to be just like me. And I thought I'm going to be just like her because she was a teacher. But when I got in first grade, the poems came when somebody was hurting. So if you got the answer wrong, I remember my first poem, Rosa Red, Violets of Blue. I know you can do this because I know it's true. And the poems, I could rattle off two verses, five verses, ten verses, depending on the situation, and I had no control over it coming out of my head. It was just coming. So I was trying to write, you know, the big... When you're in the first grade, you have those line papers with the little dashes mm-hmm. in the middle of it. And Aunt Mary said, you have to write clearly. So I'm in the first grade writing really slow as the words are coming out of my head. Roses, roses, roses. How do you spell that? And I'm writing. And I would take those poems and fold them up in as little as I could. And I would sneak them into lunch pails and book bags. And I never signed my name. I just wrote them. And I gave them away to whoever was hurting. And I would stand on the sideline and watch them go through this period of where they're like, put this piece of paper in my bag. And then you go through that, what is the piece of paper? And then they open it up and they're looking at it and they're reading it and they're going, oh, oh. And they go from being hurt to smiling. And my world was done. I saw somebody smile. That was it for me. Every time I saw somebody hurting, the poems came. And every time they smiled, I did that, yes. And I never said a word. And I did that all the way from first grade all the way through college. I gave the poems away, and I watched people change. And I knew that my stories could make people change. You impacted lives. It's evident that it's a calling. Because you didn't even know, at in first grade, you didn't even know what that was. I didn't know what I was doing. I just know I heard these words and something said right. You wrote them down and you knew that that was for that person because you saw that situation, yeah. them going through a situation. Yeah, and many years later, I, I realized, somebody asked me, do you know how rare you are? And I was like, no, I'm not. And they said, yeah, poets don't rhyme like you rhyme. And I was like, I didn't even know what rhyming was. The words just came, I just put them down on paper. And is that still your process now? Yes, I get up in the morning and I say, okay God, I'm woke. And then I giggle, and then I say, okay God, what are we gonna talk about? And something will happen, the phone will ring, a commercial will come on, a radio, some noise in the house. My brain just goes to, okay, God, it's me and you. What we going to do? So I just start writing. And I write stories. I write crazy blurbs. I write 
everything that comes in my head to just get it out on paper. And it's amazing to me, even to this day, somebody will call and say, can I ask you a question? And I say, sure. And the question they're asking me is about what I just wrote. So you have some divineness going on. And that's what I call God winks. I just wake up in the morning and say, okay, God, here we go. Let's have some fun. (laughs) What can we get into today? (laughs) That is just, that's so powerful. It, It is amazing to me, even when I see sad people or hurting people or people that have different circumstances, you know, I see homeless people, I see all kinds of people, and I still can see the giggle in them. I can still walk up to a homeless person and offer food or offer, you know, a granola bar or whatever, because I don't give money. But I can offer them something and still see that smile. People just want you to say, hello. Do you see me? Do I matter? And all of us, no matter what our circumstances are, want those same two things. Mm-hmm. Do you see me? And do I matter? Is somebody? Yeah. Yeah, you do. My answer is yes. Oh. Yes. I'm going to put you on the spot, Miss Jacqueline. <laughs> can you, we're going to go to a break, but before we do, can you read us a little something from one of your, she's got all of her books here so we're gonna hear from a lot of her different books but let's hear something from one of your is this a poem this is a poem and it's really really short and it's about the same topic smile smile it's a pretty big word if you consider the fact it determines how people watch you and how they react smile it's always returned in rain or shine and anyone can do it even if you're handicapped or blind. Smile. It doesn't even take a minute for anyone to learn, and once you send it out, watch for it to return. Smile. It's dynamic when used correctly, and it only takes a glance. When the plan has been carried out, the glance hasn't got a chance. Smile. Keep it up. Don't stop for friend or foe. Never lose your ability to smile. Carry it with you wherever you go. Tell us what book that's from. This is from my first book. I've got my wings, poems, and short stories that shaped my life. And this one is Authors on the Move for 2016. We are going to take a break and so much more conversation with author, poet, writer, Jacqueline Smithson Howard. We'll be right back after this family. Like what you hear? Drop us a line at fullcircle975 at gmail.com. And we're back with Miss Wanda, life coach, motivational speaker, and friend of sisters everywhere. 
This is Full Circle. This is Full Circle. I'm your host, Miss Wanda, having a wonderful conversation with my guests, talking about the importance of telling your story and documenting your legacy. I'm here with poet, author, woman extraordinaire, storyteller, ghostwriter, Jacqueline Smithson Howard. And before the break, we were talking about the legacy that her family has, kind of that foundation that her family laid, and that her father was a storyteller. And she shared with us how. As a child, this is a calling for her. As a child, she would see people that were hurt and, and these words would just come. The words would come. She would write these poems and encourage her classmates and people that she saw that were hurting. And she did this all the way through college. So I'm going to fast forward to college because I started asking questions. I was like, wait, wait, I have to wait till the show comes back on because I'm sure the <laughs> listeners want to hear this too. When you got to college, I find it interesting that you did not you wrote and still continue to encourage people anonymously. Yes. But you didn't develop that skill as an actual writer mm. in terms of writing things out for the public, like putting your name on it and saying, here's my work. Never taken any formal writing classes, never took writing in college. I was a math major with an accounting background. So I never, I was a, a techie. You know, when it came to computers, I wanted to be around computers because it, when I was in high school in Nashville, Tennessee, when I was growing up, was only black, white. Very few. I'm, I worked at a grocery store and the owner had a Japanese wife that was the first person outside of the white mm -hmm. race that I had ever seen. But when I got into high school, uh, University of Tennessee had a summer program and I was in a uh, all-girl Catholic high school until it went co-ed my junior year, right? So we were moved to the boys' high school. To them, it was like an invasion, right? Even to the teachers, it was an invasion. I had one nun who told me, you'll never pass my class because girls don't belong here. That was like a math or science? That was a math class in junior year. But anyway, University of Tennessee had a summer program. They were only going to allow 30 kids in a computer class. And I was always fascinated with what this computer could do. Every high school in Nashville, Tennessee, was allowed to go for these 30 spots. And everybody put in applications. I think they had 15,000 applications, only 30 spots. And the boys in the high school were like, ain't no girl ever going to get in this class. This is a man's world, and, mm -hmm. and y'all don't belong here. Go home, have babies, and, and cook. And I said, okay, as I'm putting in my application. And then it was just left to silence, right? And at the end of the school year, my junior year, they published the 30 names, and my name was on the list. And there were only three girls in the class. And I got one of those 30 spots, and I learned in summer school what computers could do, and I was hooked on computers. So by the time I got to college, I just wanted to learn more technical stuff. What could I do? So you spent your career, went to college for computer science or computers. That thrust you into a computer career. But I'm going to go back to how did you start your writing career then? Because you spent 48 years working in IT. Right. And I always got a job. You know, when, when you're growing up in the South, especially in a black family, you have to get a job. You have to get an education. You have to get a job. Writing is something extra. 
Writing is not important. That's just silly stuff you do on the side. You need to grow up, you need to get a good education, and you need to get a job. And writing is not going to give you a job. So I did what I was told by my parents. I got a good education, and then I got a job. And I started working, and every time I got a job, somebody realized that I could write. And so instead of doing, I started as a computer operator. I spent 48 years in IT, and I've never been a computer operator. Because as I'm mounting the tapes and running the job and mounting the tapes and running the job, somebody's realizing I have a brain and that there are processes that they want everybody to follow, but nobody can follow them because they're not written right. And so I started realizing that what you're telling me to do is different than what you're asking me to read or follow this process. I said, the reason why people can't do it is because you can't write. And they thought, who are you telling me what I can't do? And I said, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I'm trying to tell you that you're asking me to do something that I can do very easily, and I can show anybody how to do it. You want me to do this change management process? And I said, the change management process can be done in six steps. No, 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 no. We got these documents in from, from corporate, and, and this is the IT infrastructure library, and it was developed 25 years ago, and we have to follow these guidelines. You have to be certified for that. I don't care where it came from or who gave it to you. I can do this in six steps. And they said, okay, show me. I said, I'm from Tennessee. Watch out what you threatened me with. <laughs> and so I did. I showed them how to do it in six steps. And then they said, well, can you teach it? I said, yep. So I spent my time writing documents and teaching. Did you ever make the connection of the, your love for writing creatively with what you were doing on your job? The only connection, I'm shaking my head, people, so you can't <laughs> see me shaking my head, no, because I'm still a little kid in school and she's asking me questions, Miss Wanda is. So the answer is no, I never made the connection because I, I came up with parents who said, do as you are told. So I spent my entire life with somebody telling me what I needed to do and me doing it. So I didn't make that connection until I was really, really, really grown. I took everything seriously. I got a job in an environment where black women were not allowed. I was the first black woman computer operator for World Book Encyclopedia. I tried for this job and they said, no, you're an accounting person, so go back to the desk and, and you're going to do accounting things. And when I realized that accounting was $400 a month and a computer operator was $1,200 a month, but there were no women, and I, my father had just been promoted to the home office of World Book, and I told my dad I wanted to apply for that job, but they won't even give me an application. And he went to his friend in personnel. And personnel, we sat, my father and I sat with the personnel director, and he said, Clarence, you know we can get her this application, but it may cost you your job. And my father said, give her the application. And I'm looking at my father with my eyes really big going, no, you just moved us here from Nashville to Chicago and I can't have you lose your job and you can't do that. And he said, give her the application now. 
And I started crying. Long story, he said, do you think you can do the job? I said, no, sir. I know I can do the job. And he said, then never let anybody tell you what you cannot do. And I started, and everything was just another step in me proving as a black woman having to work twice as hard for half the pay that I can still do anything better than you can, quicker than you can, and easier than you can because you're trying to make life hard and I'm just getting up with God going, okay, God, what are we going to do today? Because <laughs> today is a new day and I know I can do this well. So what is it? <laughs> Even in sharing, you're such a storyteller. I am. The way you lay it out. <laughs> It's so, I mean, again, like I told you It's logical for me. Yeah, and it's a calling. It's a gift. It's something that not very many people can do in the way that you do it. I've heard the term gift so much, and and I don't want to be, um, I don't want to not acknowledge the power that it has. Mm -hmm. For me, it's it's a blessing. It's it's just the way I was built. I came into this world this way, so I can't, you know, it's not some kind of thing. It's just waking up in the morning and doing what makes me happy, you know. So so I don't want to make light of that because everybody has this calling. Everybody's here for a reason, and that's my reason for being here, for being able to tell stories. If I can tell them as a country girl from Nashville, Tennessee, who went barefoot and and played outside in the snow and did silly things. If I can tell my story and make a difference to somebody, look how many stories are out there. Yeah. So I didn't make the connection. I just kept writing to make somebody else happy. And if in the corporate world, if you could make the process run smoother, you were the big bag of chips and all of that mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of thing, you know. So I just wanted to make everybody's life around me easier. And Aunt Mary did it with jigsaw puzzles. And and I have a piece called There's Wisdom in Those Jigsaw Pieces, and it tells you all the things that you can learn from a jigsaw puzzle. Everybody thinks you can learn colors and shapes. But you, the hand-eye coordination, the finish what you start, the don't quit, the see the big picture. Every project in the IT world, in the information technology world, starts with a simple idea and a project and a timeline. If that's not a jigsaw puzzle, I don't know what is. Yeah. So when did you find, and I'll say the courage, just for lack of a better term, when did you find the courage to actually start tapping into that skill of writing, not technically for work, not encouraging anonymous notes, but actually writing to share with the world, your poems and things like that. My good friend, Phyllis Clemens. I know, we just lost her Rest in, in peace, Phyllis. Yes. Phyllis, there was a meeting of the Black Women's Chamber of Commerce It was supposed to be a meeting of women to get together and discuss ideas. And I was sitting at home writing. 
minding my own business in my own home. I've always been a loner. And I'm thinking, I don't know anybody here in Sacramento. I'm going to go to this meeting and just see what happens. And I'm in this room with 300 women, and I'm looking at all these black women, the sizes, the shapes, the colors, the, the ooh, women were were dressed to the hilt and they carried themselves like my mother did and my grandmother did and I'm looking at all this wisdom thinking why are you here what are you going to say there's nothing you could do that could help any of these people oh my god why did I come out of my house and then there was Phyllis and she was this light bubbly smiley thing and we stood side by side and all of us are standing in this room standing until somebody decides that they need to have some chairs because the older women in their 70s and 80s getting tired. So they started putting out tables and Phyllis and I raced and we sat at the same table. And she sat there and she said, I'm thinking about having a coffee and conversation group at my home, but I don't think anybody would come. Now remember, I'm the loner. I'm sitting at the table going to her. I'll come. And I've got my hands in my mouth going, where did those words come <laughs> from? Get back in that. Why did you say that? You don't know this woman. You don't know where she lives. You don't know what she does. What have you done? And she's smiling so brightly. And she says, you would come. And I said, yes. Where did I say? Why did I say that? And I went to her house. I was the first person at Coffee and Conversation. And she said to me, you've got enough stories in you that you need to publish and she was a publisher. And I said, absolutely not. And she said, yes, I'm going to give you a project plan and we're going to write your first book in 60 days. And my eyes got big as silver dollars and I said, no, 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 I can't do it. I don't know. She said, yes, you can. Yes, you can. I said, okay, again, why did I say this? 60 days. She published that book in 30 days. And that book is what I just read that first poem out of. She published it. The Sacramento Library Foundation picked it up as an author on the move. And that was your first foray into sharing your gift with the world in that way. Yep. That was 17 books ago. And then you just got on this. So <laughs> was it that you saw it was that easy and then it just everything just started flowing out of you? Like you, what was the process? Everybody who just like you are sitting around me and listening to the way I tell stories. Uh -huh. And they kept saying, oh, my God, can you come here and tell this story? Can you come here and tell that story? And I started getting on stage. I started um, going to Celebration Arts Theater and the Storytelling Festival. I started going to poetry venues and sharing my poetry. And I was just standing there telling my truth, right? I didn't write poems that were for something else, some, some you know, like the Black Lives Matter movement or, mm -hmm. or some activist group. I just told my truth. So I was standing with, even in a crowd, I'm just telling you what my truth is, mm -hmm. not that you have to agree or disagree. So everywhere I went, people were looking at me like I was an anomaly. And I kept thinking, why are y'all thinking I'm so strange? I'm just like everybody else I know, you know, in my family. Right. And, and it didn't dawn on me that I was so different, that people weren't used to hearing 
this kind of truth, this kind of wholesomeness, this kind of, you know, if I'm okay, you're okay. And I don't really care where you came from or what you have or don't have. You know, you put on your clothes the same way I put on mine. You may be a different color, you may be a different size, but aren't we all the same? And that struck me as odd that you think I'm the different one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm just as natural as I think. And that's when I got the realization that my world, to me, is different than everybody else's world because we're all living in our own created worlds. And none of them are the same. So if I get to share my stories, maybe, just maybe, there's a little impact on what your story is. And if I can tell mine, Lord knows how much I can listen to when I'm listening to your stories. So it became more fun to me to hear other people's stories so I could write other people's stories. Part of what you do now is you are a ghost writer. So you can help other people, like you said, develop your story. Five books as a ghost writer, 17 books in total. Mm-hmm. I have 11, I think 11 uh, anthologies, like you, the one you just shared with me this uh-huh. morning. I, uh-huh. I have my work in 11 other books, even nationally anthologies. Yeah. I'm going to get to the ghost writing in a moment, but I want to talk about your book, A Wake Up Call, a, mm. a Father, a Daughter, and Three Strokes. That one is very impactful, family, because you are listening to a woman that has had two strokes. Yes. That they didn't think you would even be doing what you're doing now. I got laid off from HP in 2017, July. In August, I was sitting writing um, because I had been writing for two years at that point professionally, you know, my published work, and my right leg went numb, and I didn't know what was going on, called a boyfriend, and and he got me to an emergency room, and 12 hours in the emergency room, and and they told me I'd had a full stroke, and I said, no, that's not possible, and they said, your stroke was like maybe three months prior to this. I said, no, three months prior to this, I was working for HP. I had control of 500 clients across 22 countries. I'm online with two laptops face-to-face, and I'm teaching. If I had had a stroke, somebody would have told me I look crazy, sound crazy, or walking and talking crazy, Mm -hmm. even though I'm working from home you would know something was wrong. And she said no, and I went to reach for my water bottle with my left hand because I'm left-handed, and she said, (gasps) and I'm looking, the boyfriend is looking, and I'm like, what, what's wrong? I'm just gonna take water. And and she said, your left hand. I said, yes, and she said, you're not supposed to be using your left hand. I said, why? She said, because You didn't just have one stroke, you had two. And your left side is not supposed to be working. I said, well, my left side and my right side are working. My right leg is not working fairly, but it works. And she said, no. 
I'm frozen now. I'm sitting in an emergency room like you're telling me I'm not supposed to be moving, and I'm moving. My hands are moving. My head is moving. And she turned the screen around, and she showed me a big white spot on my left side and a big white spot on my right side where that part of my brain is gone. And she said, we're going to keep you overnight. And I said, I just got laid off a month ago. I have no health coverage. I know what it costs to be in a hospital, and I can't pay this. I don't have any insurance. And she said, we're keeping you overnight because I don't want you to die. And I said, okay. A little girl, do what you told. I said, okay. And they kept me overnight. And when I got upstairs in the hospital room, they said, you're going to stay here for five days. I said, no, I'm not. And they said, okay, don't argue with a black, don't argue with the woman. We'll see you in the morning. And I said, okay. And they had to run a lot of tests. And they ran them because I told them at 4 o'clock this afternoon, I'm leaving here. Mm-hmm. You only have one day. And they rushed, and all the doctors came in, and they let me go. And they said, you don't have any side effects. We can't, don't understand why you're... You are the way you are. And I said, because my dad had a stroke in 2004, and I started walking for the American Stroke Association. And since I've been walking for 15 years, I think I have walked myself into a healthier lifestyle, Mm -hmm. even though I'm still a junk food junkie. But I've been walking long enough where I think that's why I'm strong enough to keep writing and keep doing what I'm doing. He said, okay, we'll watch you, but please don't drive for two weeks. I said, okay, and I went home. And I've never had any side effects. I've never had any slurred speech. I've never had any blurred vision. And so how do you wake up in the morning after getting that news and not say, Okay, God, right. <laughs> what we going to do today? Because right. today I'm not supposed to be here. Yeah, I don't want to wallow in the I'm not supposed to be here. I got to stay with the, ooh, we got, I'm woke. <laughs> and everything that's supposed to move still moves. So this book, A Wake Up Call, is the journey between my dad's stroke in 2004 me walking my first full marathon in 2005 after six months of training, and then me walking and walking and walking through my own strokes. And I'm here today, June 5th, knowing that on June 3rd, 2021, I just completed my third full marathon And I have walked more than 4,000 miles in 16 years. And I'm here. And I'm writing. And I'll tell any story you want me to tell. (laughs) You know, when I booked you, ma'am, I did not know (laughs) this was going to be such an emotional show you know I thought we talked a little bit about writing but your story is so fascinating and again I can't stress enough the way you tell and share the things that you've gone on in your life you are a natural storyteller but that story there is amazing because you talk about again that journey from when your dad had his stroke through the things that you went through as well to get through to your own health you know, situation and get through that. 
realizing that I am a junk food junkie, that I like chocolate and hamburgers and milkshakes, and knowing that every job I've ever had had a junk drawer, and my junk drawer was a six-pack of Pepsi-Cola and a bag of potato chips, not the small bag, the family-sized bag that mm -hmm. was just for me, and candy bars and ho-hos and everything else. You know, anything chocolate, Reese's peanut butter cups, you know, I just lived off of candy and junk food and hamburgers and fries, and I never cooked. I stayed under my dad growing up, so I was never in the kitchen with my mother. Sorry, Mom. But I thought cooking was for somebody else to do. And so I always ate out at restaurants. I always worked and had money, and I was always doing something else. And when Dad had his stroke, I started to cry, realizing that he was paralyzed on the right side. I was the only one of three daughters that smoked. Could I have harmed him? Was it my fault? Even though I was in a whole different city, was it my fault? My dad had a stroke. And I started walking for the American Stroke Association without realizing what I was doing again. My dad had a stroke, so I was walking for my dad. I wasn't walking for me. I was still smoking when I trained for the full marathon. I was still a junk food junkie. I was still a diabetic. I was still 300 plus pounds. I was 50 years old. Everybody's looking at me like, you're going to die on this training course. Mm -hmm. And I said, I am walking for my dad, and I'm going to walk a full marathon. What's a full marathon? I don't know. I'm just going to walk for my dad. So I trained, and I went to Hawaii. 2005, I trained for six months, got to Hawaii, and the morning of, they said, honey, you can't do a full marathon. You need to go over to that table and sign up to do a half marathon, which is 13.1 miles. Mm -hmm. A full marathon is 26.2 miles because we don't think you're going to make it. I said, let me tell you one thing. My father did not raise a quitter. I came to walk a full marathon, and I will walk a full marathon today. They said, honey, it's going to be 95 degrees and 95% humidity. You are not going to make it. I said, I don't think so. So I got up the next morning to go to the race. It was 82 degrees and 64% humidity. And I said, come on, God. We got 26.2 to do. And I was the last one across the finish line. I got my medal, and I was the first one in the family to ever walk a full marathon for my dad. And I've been walking ever since. What a powerful story. Before we go, because I want to go into your books, but I just want to know what was so... In your walking, you were walking for your dad. It never clicked that you, I don't want to say should be walking for yourself, but that the connection was never made. Like, oh, I could be walking to get myself healthier. At what point did, did that ever change for you? It never changed until I came across the full marathon, the second marathon 
uh, was a half marathon. My second time training was for a half marathon because mm-hmm. I said, okay, I've done the 26 miles. I'll just do half marathons yeah. from here on in. So the second time, the first one was in Hawaii. The second one was in Phoenix, Arizona. It was 2006. And it was the race that the Kenyan broke the world record by 14 seconds. I'm walking 13.1 miles. I get to mile marker one, and that Kenyan is across the finish line. Mm. And so I kept walking, trying to do my personal best, right? And I see this woman on my team that I don't know, but I know she's on my team. She's wearing the same T-shirt. She stops at mile one and says, I quit. I'm not going any further. Now I'm in the race with 33,700 people in a whole different state. I know her husband's at the finish line. I'm now a mentor because I've done this before, even though I'm a rookie because it's only my second time. I can't leave you here. I'm a Girl Scout. I can't leave you here. So I went over. I tried to get her up, and she said, no, I'm not leaving. I said, okay. So I started singing. I said, I'm going to sing crazy songs all off key and embarrass you until you get up. I pulled her up. Now I'm pulling another black woman in a race with 33,000 people where I'm supposed to be doing my personal best. But the Girl Scout says, leave no person behind. So I pulled her for 10 miles. I knew I had lost my record. There's no way I can get across this finish line in any good time. And then her, my, her mentor came out to meet her, realized what was going on, and said, go ahead, just go on. I got her. Mm-hmm. Go on and try and do your best from here. Now I got three miles left. And I start going, okay, now I'm not pulling an extra person, which was hard, but I'm walking, you know. So I'm, I'm holding her hand and I'm singing off cue. I'm acting a fool, you know, la, 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 la. <laughs> I'm just making up stuff. And I let her go, and I start walking, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to just really concentrate. And I started walking, and I saw this little white girl, maybe 20 years, 30 years younger than I was, starting to sway from one side to the other. In marathon terminology, that means you are not hydrated enough, and you're starting to get dizzy. Mm -hmm. And she's starting to bump into people and, and really going from side to side. And the Girl Scout kicks in again, and I said, are you okay? And she had a headset in, didn't hear me. And I tapped, are you okay? And she looked up, and she said, you're the singing lady. Will you sing to me too? And I grabbed her hand, and I walked her in for the last three miles. And when her white husband saw her holding hands with a black woman who he didn't know, he came flying out onto the race, out onto the course, like, let her go, let her go. And she said, honey, she saved me, she saved me, she saved me, she's the reason why I'm here, she saved me, and and she's my friend. And I let go of her, and he grabbed her. When she said that, he said, thank you, ma'am, for saving my wife. And he took her and walked off the course like, I still got to get her away. 
and I crossed the finish line, I had always in training made four hours and 20 minutes, four hours and 20 minutes. I was trying to break that. And my coach came running up to me and he said, Jackie, Jackie, I said, what? He said, you did it. I said, yep, I came 13 miles with two people that I don't know that I was pulling along the way. And he said, no, 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 you made your personal best. I said, no way. I said, four hours, 20 minutes, that's what it's going to say. So everybody's standing at the board waiting for the numbers to click in. And I looked up and I started crying. It is the one and only race that I made three hours and 46 minutes, carrying two people for 13 miles. Now, if that's not God, again, we'll repeat, I don't know what he is. Storyteller, <laughs> author. Truth. Just my truth. truth. teller. <laughs> Just an amazing person, Jacqueline Smithson Howard. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more Full Circle after this. Like and share our Facebook page at Full Circle 97.5. Empowering women through conversation. This is what she does. She is Miss Wanda, and this is Full Circle. Thank you so much for staying with the program. This is Full Circle. I'm your host, Miss Wanda, having just an amazing conversation with my guest, Jacqueline Smithson Howard. I've known Miss Jackie for a while now, but I didn't know her. Like, so this is even for me, this is a great interview because I'm getting to know the awesome person that she is. And so I want to dig into her books a little bit. Like I said, she's written several books, and you can find you can find those on Amazon, right? Mm-hmm. You can find all the ones that I, I have written for myself on Amazon and all of the Coffee and Conversation series from Phyllis. Uh, I am the only author that's in all five of those. But my ghostwriting books, because I'm writing for somebody else, has somebody else's names on them. Yeah. So you won't find them under my name. You'll find them under their name. Okay. But your books are A Wake Up Call that we just talked mm-hmm. about, A Father, A Daughter, and Three Strokes, Which Family, that one mm-hmm. alone. I'm, I'm excited to read that one. From Out of the Shadows, Doubt in the Service of Faith. And that one is the one that you co-wrote with I co-wrote this one with my 95-year-old aunt, who is a black Catholic nun. And she's poking the Bible. Can you believe that? Oh, wow. Yeah, she says nobody's following what's written in the Bible. They're just following what somebody has decided, all the doctrines. And uh-huh. the, and so she pokes at everything that's not right. Hmm. Okay, from <laughs> Out of the Shadows, we're all the same. Poems and short stories about everyday stuff. Open and connected poems and short stories that keep you grounded And I've Got My Wings. This is what she read out of um, the first book that she published, Poems and Short Stories That Shaped My Life. Open and Connected is the book, the poetry book that is more driven towards my mother because it was published right after my father died. And my mother wrote a love story to my father as he was passing and apparently shared it with my two sisters who were in Chicago with her at the time. My younger sister visiting and my older sister was the one that had been taking care of my mother and father. She's a nurse. And my mother wrote this love story and she said, I want you to publish it. And I said, Mom, I can't publish a love story. You know, just publish a story. I have to then write a book that's around you and Dad's love story, you know. 
She said, okay, now I'm thinking I'm going to write this book and my mother's going to see the proof and decide this is way too personal. She's not going to want this published. So I went through all the exercise with Phyllis of writing the poems, writing the short stories, put the book together, sent it to my mother, the proof, and she said, I don't want you to, and in my head I'm hearing, publish this. Yeah. And what came out of her mouth was, I don't want you to change one word. Publish it, please. And that's what Open and Connected is. Let's talk about the importance of writing your story and building that legacy. Why do you think, in your words, it's so important? I write for two reasons. One, everybody has a story. Let's start with that. Everybody has a million stories. You've heard me tell so many stories just in this hour. But I write because somebody needs to hear that what you've gone through is the same thing that they're going through, maybe a different flavor, maybe a different strength, but the same story. And if you can get through it to the other side, they can too. And the second reason why I write is because everybody needs to know two things. Do I see you and do you matter? Everybody wants to be important to somebody. A lot of somebodies, but at least one somebody. I want to be important to that one somebody. And when you're telling your story, you get a chance to introduce you to whoever wants to listen. I was sitting in a Kaiser pharmacy waiting for my prescription to be filled, and I was telling this woman that I was a writer. And she said, oh, honey, I used to write all the time, but I stopped writing because, you know, there's no money in writing, and, and there's nothing really to tell. I don't have a big, good story. And I said, may I ask you a question? And she said, yes. I said, do your children know who you are? And she said, my children know I'm their mom. I said, yes, and all they know is that you're their mom. They don't know who you were as a teenager. They don't know who you were as a student. They don't know who you were as a girlfriend. They don't know who you were as a wife. They only know you as a mom. And when they grow up, when they have children of their own, they'll want to know who was my mom. Please go home, get a $2 journal from Walmart, write in it every day, and introduce yourself to your children. Hmm. What would you want to tell them that they don't know about you? Do they know your favorite color? Do they know how old you were when you started to ride a bike? Did you go skating when you were my age? They don't know those things. Do you like butterflies? Just tell a story. That's good. And I was going to ask you, too, what would you say to someone that feels like they don't have anything to say? But that's a great place Everybody to start. Everybody has something to say. Introduce yourself to your children. Introduce yourself to yourself. Introduce yourself <laughs> to yourself. Who was I 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago? I was different than I am today. And every new day is a new story because you don't know what's going to happen. 
everything is an opportunity, and every opportunity is only an opportunity because of the impact it will have on somebody else, even if that somebody is you. The only way we survive is the we, and the only way we live and learn to do better is to realize what we did before. I want you to be moving forward, looking in the front mirror of your car when you're driving, but you can't drive without that rearview mirror. You gotta know where you come from in order to know where you're going. And in order to do that effectively is to pay attention to what you're going through every day. That's the story that needs to be told. Everybody says, I want to tell my success story. I want to be famous. Do you know every morning you get up and you're still breathing is a success? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Do you know everything that you went through yesterday, that you made it through? Whether you did what you were supposed to do or did what you weren't supposed to do, it was a success story. You had an option. You made a decision. You made a choice. And then you acted on it. Write it down, please. Please write it down. And that's the legacy building, too. It's like showing not just your children, but for generations to come too. I was here. We talk about the Tulsa incident that's going on in the news today, a hundred years ago, and there are only three survivors living. Nobody else knew that story except for those three people that are living today. A 107-year-old woman and her brother, they were five and seven when that happened. Can you imagine if somebody had told their story? I want you and everybody listening to realize you are here. I believe in God, so if you don't, I apologize for you. But you are here because someone created you to be here in this time and space. The world needs to know you were here. The world needs to know what you did while you were here. The world needs to know who you're connected to while you're here. Everybody's trying to look up somebody on Ancestry.com to see who am I connected to, which boils down to my same two reasons. Do you see me and do I matter? That's such a good word. My friend was visiting from Texas last week, and she and I were talking, and one of the things she mentioned was she wanted to, she was wondering how could she leave a legacy for seven generations from now? Mm -hmm. And so she was like, I want to write something, but I don't want it to get lost. And, And so we were talking about different ideas, and I said, you know what you can do? You can do a plaque. Right. So whatever it is you want to tell the family, put it in a beautiful plaque. That way it can get passed down. It's not a piece of paper that can get lost or mangled or destroyed in some way. Mm -hmm. But I was like, write what it is you want to say and put it on a beautiful plaque and then make sure that you're letting your, you know, your children and so on know that this is something to be passed down through the family. These are your words from their great, 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 great grandmother. Exactly. To be passed down. 
And I thought that was a I thought that was a great idea. It's like that's something that we know, you know, families have heirlooms all the time. Exactly. So why not have that be a family heirloom? Mm-hmm. You know? That's so. a perfect example of how you get started. Yeah. Passing on the legacy. Unless there is a story to it, it doesn't hold any value. As long as you know this was important to me, it will be important to somebody else down the line when you share that value. And so that's what storytelling is for me, is to share what did you learn from your father? Or I'm sitting here talking to you and my hands are moving and my head is shaking yes or no because I forget that I'm on radio uh-huh. and not on TV and that nobody can see me, right? Uh-huh. But but I'm sitting here as a grown woman wondering where did I get that mannerism from? Why do I speak with my hands moving so much until I watch my father? And my father speaks with his hands. I watch my mother. My mother was a first grade teacher. Every first grade teacher teaches with their hands. Right. Because they're writing on the board, or they're trying to show you a picture or a shape, or they're using their hands. That's where I came from, and I know this. But how many people don't know that? The kids now are latchkey kids because both parents are working. The parents aren't home with them in the daytime. The teachers, certainly in these classrooms, uh, forgive my, I know how important all teachers are, but there are 26 kids in the classroom. You can't pay attention to each one of those kids in the classroom. And so the individual child gets lost in the group. That child then comes home to an empty house. That child has parents that care about them, but the child may not know it. The child doesn't know where they come from, and they're so busy being a child that they're supposed to be that they're not thinking like an adult. The adult is the one who should be thinking like an adult and sharing their stories so that that child has something to hold on to when they grow up. And the reason why I say introduce yourself, because you don't know you, as you said, so you can't expect your child to know you. And the child will then have a reason to introduce themselves to their own children as they grow up the child will introduce themselves differently to their friends as they're growing up. The impact will always compound or expand because when you give people information, you cannot be the same person. You That's have good. to be different. That's so good. It gives, I think it gives the children to a sense of self. Exactly. A sense of belonging and knowing what breaks my heart is that so many families and I'm thinking about parents and things like that have gone through experiences that maybe have been so painful for them that they don't want to share it. Right. But the child needs to know some version of that. Exactly. Say you were. I'm just going to use an extreme example. Say you were sexually assaulted, right? You don't have to tell your child that, but you can tell them some form of something that gives them a sense of who you are and what you've gone through. Does that make sense? It makes more sense to me than you'll ever realize because the job of a ghostwriter, if I'm writing for somebody else, that means I'm not writing for Jackie. It's not Jackie's story. It's not Jackie's experience. It's not Jackie's anything. 
So what I have to do is take Jackie completely out of the picture. Now, how can I write for you, Miss Wanda, if I am Jackie? God gives me what I call God winks. I can't be you, so God lets me hear what you're telling me. You or somebody has been sexually assaulted. That to me says pain and hurt. God then translates what I'm hearing into the language of emotion for me. So there's something that happened in my life where I was in pain and I was hurt. Not the same experience, but the same emotion, the same feeling. God translates that feeling so now I can feel you. And if I can feel you, I can tell your story because I can now act as if I'm in pain. I don't have to write the particulars. I can write around the issue, but I can still express the same emotional pain. And the child that you're writing for or, or want to know that you were in that pain wants to know how you came out of it. The fact that you were in pain, the fact that you realized you're in pain, and the fact that you realized that you could get out of it. That's the point. Every child is going to go through something painful. Everybody is going to go through something painful. You're going to wallow in it and become worse or you're going to figure out how to get around it and do better. I want to get to the better. Let's get to the good stuff. I cannot bypass that I went through it. I was a junkie, a junk food junkie for 30 years until the, my doctor put me on insulin. Now have somebody tell you that you've got to go next door and learn how to put a needle in you because mm -hmm. you have messed your body up to the point where you now need to shoot insulin into your stomach. You want to be a junkie? That's the closest thing I know to being a junkie because I never took drugs, mm -hmm. you know, but I had to shoot insulin every day for a year. I know that pain not your pain, but I know the pain. I know having to admit to my parents that now I have to shoot myself up because I had too many hamburgers and french fries. It sounds silly now on the other side, but when you're sitting in that room when somebody's mm -hmm. got a three-inch needle at you trying to show you how you got to stick it into yourself, that ain't so funny. Yeah. So yes, I have to take myself out of the situation, and the God winks, God will translate. So Dr. Spencer, I wrote Dr. Spencer's book for him. He wrote the, the manuscript, and I turned it into a book as his ghostwriter because his parents were slaves. His parents were slaves. They got off the slave property. They started having children and wanted all of their children to graduate college. So he wanted to tell the story of how he got out, worked on his mother's back as she's picking cotton as a baby, got off that plantation and actually went all the way through college. And now as a grown man, he's 80, in his late 80s now, but all his children and grandchildren have graduated college because that's the legacy his parents set. So I can't be an 86-year-old black man, a veteran, 
but I can feel the pain of what it means to be a baby on a mother's back, a baby on a plantation, a child going through school. I, all the stages we've all been through, yeah. we just feel them differently. You make a good point, too, because I think people that may want to share their story and don't know how to put it together, that's where a ghostwriter can come in and help. But let's dispel the myth about how much you have to have before you see a ghostwriter. Like, say I want to tell, and you know I want to write a second book, but how much do I have to have in order to work with a ghostwriter? You know, do I have to have like pages or like what do I need or what in, in order to work with you at least? Like what do people need in order to start considering coming to a ghostwriter to help them unfold and share their story? Everybody has to have a story. So you have to first figure out what story do you want to tell. Now, for most people, that's a really hard thing because we have so many different stories. And the first question that comes to mind is, where should I start? What should I do? What, what kind of outline should I have? And it has to be perfect, and it has to be in order. And if I'm going to start this story, I have to start at the beginning, and I have to tell you at the end, blah, 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 blah. And we go on and on and on. Mm -hmm. Nope. You just have to start with what you're thinking of today. I call it a brain dump. So whatever you're thinking of today, you just said the story of a friend who had sexual abuse. You get a piece of paper or actually you get an online file. You open up a Word document and you say, today's date, I was thinking of my girlfriend who went through this. And you write about it. And tomorrow, you were thumping your kid on the back of his head because he didn't make up his bed or didn't do this and you put it in that file and you write it down and you whatever you think of that you would someday want to write about even if someday never come you put it in the same file one single file with a date and a time and a subject and then I believe like the story the song you shared in the first break God will put it all together and order your steps. A ghostwriter comes in, a ghostwriter like me who's used to playing with jigsaw puzzles will come in and see all of these jigsaw puzzle pieces, the paragraphs and the dates and the information, and they will take all those pieces and start putting the puzzle together in logical format. Just like you, God ordering your steps, God is also ordering my steps. I see differently than you see, and I start putting the story together and talking to you, and you go, oh, yeah, and then when that happened, I remembered this, and I start adding to it, and now we have a story to tell because you have put everything out of your head and onto the paper. I'm supposed to put it in order as a ghostwriter, or you as a writer, once you have everything out of your head, you realize that you wrote it and that you can really write it for yourself. Because I don't want everybody thinking they need a ghostwriter, yeah. even though I'd love to be able to write by 500,000 people. There's yeah. only one of me. Right, right. You know, so you decide if you can get it out of your head and you can write it down. God will also order your steps and tell what story you're supposed to tell at this time. Not every book is full of all the stories in total. Every book is just a segment of your life, a piece of your story. 
So you write in pieces, you publish in pieces, or you leave the journals in pieces for your children and others to find. But you have to get it out of your head. And the easiest way to do that is just like you're talking and thinking today. Whatever you think of, write it down. Put it in your phone in the notes pad or put it online. Just write it down. Do you ever coach people like that want to authentically write their own story from beginning to end without, because you said not everyone wants or needs a ghostwriter, but maybe someone wants to write their story, but just doesn't, just needs a nudging, some, some guidance. Is that something that you do as well? I don't. I have been asked several times Uh and I've never put a coaching class or a workshop together. Mm -hmm. I could, um, but again, I wonder if it holds value, you know, because people tell me they want to tell their stories, but they won't act on it. They won't even call you back, you mm-hmm. know. So if you're not going to call me back, how are you going to pay for a workshop? Or, But I don't know. It's something to think mm-hmm. about. It's something to mull, it's, that's for it sure. It is something to think about because I've certainly written enough books and been through this process enough. When I talked about Phyllis uh, earlier, when... Before Phyllis died, I was in the workshop with her to learn how to publish. Mm -hmm. And the wake-up call was my first time writing, designing my own cover, and publishing under my own name for the first time. So now I can add to this, this repertoire publisher because I published my first book. We need to take a break, but will you read us something else from one of your books? I know you have marks in there, so will you read us something from one of your books? I will. Okay. I'm going to take you back to the childhood because I think it's important. Uh, do, how much time do I have? We got, we, you're good. I, I, I have a piece here called There's Wisdom in, these pe- in Those Pieces because of the jigsaw puzzles. Everything I've done in life is because of the jigsaw puzzles, and you'll, you'll learn what I learned in a minute. I was five years old, just starting school and feeling pretty good because Aunt Mary was going to be my teacher. My favorite cousin Larry was going to be in the first grade with me too, so I wouldn't feel alone. We were really close cousins, and Aunt Mary was my dad's oldest sister, and Larry's mom was the next oldest sister. Aunt Mary wasn't very tall, but when I was five years old, she looked like a giant to me and Larry. She had a great big smile that made her eyes twinkle, and when she laughed, her shoulders shook. She made learning fun because she made different characters come alive with her voice. When we got to her classroom, Aunt Mary went into the big cabinet, pulled out a stack of jigsaw puzzles, and laid laid them on the table in front of us. She told us that there was going to be plenty of fun pictures for us to choose from. There were clowns and bears and boats and cars. They were all 10-piece wooden puzzles that seemed to be as old as she was. She said to handle them with care and have fun. That was the first of two life lessons from her. Take care of other people's things and have fun. I was in school for the first time when she said to have fun, so school became fun. We sorted through the puzzles, careful not to lose the pieces from each one, and then there was a loud shh. 
Aunt Mary says we have to get ready for her favorite part of the day. Does everyone have a puzzle? She asked. We all roared, yes! She said with her big voice, I can't hear you. And we yelled louder, yes! Okay, she said, when I count to three, I want you to turn the puzzles over as fast as you can so the pieces will drop on the tables in front of you. Then you will hear my most favorite sound. One, two, three, go! And we flipped over the wooden pieces on the table and the pieces went flying. They made a loud booming sound and Aunt Mary laughed so hard she made all of us laugh too. We scrambled together the pieces and she said, learning is the only fun when you share it. That was life lesson number three. Learning is only fun when you share it. And teaching children how to learn using jigsaw puzzles was her most favorite thing. She taught us everything using the puzzles. Everything I did could be shared. Over the next few months, Aunt Mary used the jigsaw puzzles to teach us colors and shapes, hand-eye coordination, counting, and addition. She made funny faces and used her funny voices to help us realize that even when we gave the wrong answer, it was okay because she would show us how to get the right answer. That was a big lesson. It was the one thing I forgot plenty of times over the years. It's okay to fail because you can always try again. She even taught us time management. Really, with a 10-piece puzzle, you could sit for 10 minutes. That was enough time to learn how to count to 10. There was also the attention span of the first grader. In 10 minutes, we could recite the alphabet. Then, she said, she would give us something to look forward to. When we get to be a second grader, you'll be doing 25-piece puzzles. She'd tell us that you would learn, that we would learn so fast and be so good at the bigger puzzles that by the time we were doing a hundred piece puzzles, we would be sitting in high school class and learning about history. Aunt Mary said that by the time we got to the 1,000 piece puzzle, we would be sitting in college for four hours learning about all kinds of things. That's when one kid invariably invariably shouted, no way, nobody can sit that long and be still. And the rest of the class laughed so hard that Aunt Mary would promise that it was true. She would stand straight up, put her serious face on, place her hand over her heart, and promise. She couldn't hold her serious face very long with us. We made her laugh. Looking back, I learned more in those moments Focus, trust, always look forward to the next thing, and everything is possible. Over the years, my jigsaw puzzles grew in size, shape, and complexity. I could sit for hours with a 4,000-piece puzzle, and my ability to figure out problems, find the right piece, stay until it was finished, had laid the foundation for me to solve high school problems, write college papers, and work on plenty of projects on the job. The more I remember about Aunt Mary's classes, 
When Aunt Mary turned 80 years old, she was visiting me in California. I begged her, to, her son to bring her and my uncle to the data center I was working in. When they arrived, I took her into the data center that was lined with jigsaw puzzles as far as the eye could see from all over the world. Aunt Mary was delighted to see that her simple elementary school technique helped help provide me with a wonderful education and career path. Her shoulders reared back, her now tiny, frail frame glowed with the biggest smile, and she pinched both of my cheeks with a hearty, my little Jackie. I will never forget that feeling. I will never be more grateful for being able to share that full circle moment with her. She is the same woman who inspired my poetry and storytelling abilities. All the lessons were and are part of my personal development today. My wish for you is to get a jigsaw puzzle of your favorite thing. Invite family and friends over to have a puzzle party with plenty of food, fun, and drinks. Share one of your goals that you are seriously considering and ask for their support. Soak up all the wisdom they have to offer. Write down the lessons learned and next steps. Add a date and a time for each. Have fun. Be grateful for the experience. Live long and laugh often. Repeat these steps as many times as you choose, and your life will be richer for it. That was Jacqueline Smithson Howard, poet, writer, storyteller, and so much more. This is Full Circle. We'll be right back. Empowerment through conversation. That starts with you. Tell us what topics you want to hear. Drop us a line at fullcircle975 at gmail.com. It's not just talk when you put it into action. Empowering Women Through Conversation with Miss Wanda. Family, this has been such an amazing conversation. If you've missed any part of it, don't forget that the uh, the podcast drops every Tuesday at noon, so you can go back and hear not only today's show, but past episodes. If you look for Ms. Wanda's Full Circle Radio on your favorite podcasting platform, you can hear, like I said, not only today's show, but all the previous episodes that are out there in the world. My guest today is um, poet author, freelance writer, uh, native of Nashville, Tennessee, Jacqueline Smithson Howard, with 17 books to her credit as a poet, writer, storyteller, ghost writer, contributing author, and publisher. I want to go back really quickly in the in the little bit of time we have left and talk about, I remember, you. well, you mentioned that you wrote your mother's story, right? You published that story, um, and you mentioned that you were uh, presenting to the Sacramento Public Library Foundation. You read that story. Talk about that, because that was a very powerful story that you just shared with me. It was very... Um, I wrote a poem for my mother. Her, my mother was married on her birthday, so it's her birthday and her anniversary the same day, July 17th. And my niece, who was senator in Illinois at the time, asked me to write a, a poem for her birthday, and I did. And I wrote a poem called I Stand on Her Shoulders, and it goes through um, the story of what it was like having a mom like her who did everything with us from girls. And when we were in Girl Scouts, she was the cadet leader. Um, when we did whatever, she was always there um, with us, my, th my sisters and I. 
And so I wrote, I read this poem, and of course, for her birthday celebration, she's sitting there with my dad, and everybody in the room is crying. I'm crying so hard, I can hardly read the poem. And my o- older sister and my younger sister have now come up on stage to flank me to make sure I can get the words out, right? Mm-hmm. And everybody's crying. And fast forward years and years later, I'm on the job, and I'm I've got control at HP of across 22 countries, and a woman in Sao Paulo, Brazil, says, I can't, I heard you wrote a story about your mom, but I can't read your story because my mom has had a stroke, or my mom has, has, has had in a coma. And I said, oh my gosh, now I'm on a public meeting with 300 people on the meeting, so I said, we'll talk after the meeting is over. And I got off the phone, I said, I'm going to send you my mother's poem because I believe even though your mother's in a coma, she can't hear you, but you, I, you can't hear her, but she can hear you. Mm-hmm. So I said, if you, what I wrote is something that you believe about your mother, then read the poem to her. Now she had just, she was probably 21, 22 years old. She had just had her second uh, little baby girl and she was like a month old. Her mother had never seen the baby, the second baby, because she was in a coma. They read the story, and her and her brothers were in the hospital room with her mother, and her mother opened her eyes and blinked, and they screamed. They thought it was just her body uh, reacting, not to the poem. And so her brother said, keep reading, keep reading. And so they started reading my mother's poem again. They're reading to her, and her mother opened her eyes and looked at the baby in her lap and smiled and then closed her eyes back. And they said, oh my God, keep reading, keep reading. So now they're reading to the mother who's in a coma. Four, five, six months later, she calls me on the job and she says, my mother is awake and she's home. She can't talk, but she's home. And my mother wants to meet your mother. And I'm like, honey, darling, I don't know how that's going to work because mm-hmm. you're in Brazil and my mother's in Chicago. Mm-hmm. She says, oh, don't worry, I'll fix it. I, we can get this done, little kids and technology, right? So she sends me a picture of her mother. I get the picture of her mother. I send it to my mother. I send her a picture of my mother. And to this day, my mother's picture is on her mother's dresser and my her picture my mother has somewhere. Mm-hmm. Now, fast forward even farther, I'm at the Sacramento Poetry Center and I'm reading my mother's poem. I finished getting through the poem and this very elderly uh, German looking woman comes flying up the aisle and she says, I need that book now. I need that book right away. And I said, okay, I have copies. I'll get you a copy. And she says, I need it. My mother hated me and I hated my mother. And I froze in my tracks. I had never heard mm-hmm. a mother not, a mother doesn't hate their children. And she said, my mother told me every day that she hated me and she hated having children and she didn't want anything to do with us. And I, I grew up all my life just knowing that I wasn't, I was not loved, I was hated. So she said, one, I can't understand how you even got all those words out of your mouth. And two, I want them. And I said, okay. She says, I want that book now so I can read that poem every morning and know what a mother was supposed to be. 
And to it's this terrible. day, every time I tell that story, I cry because I cannot imagine how old that woman was and that she had gone through every day of her life knowing or believing that her mother hated her. And I'm sharing this mushy story about my mother who loved me. She's 91 years old, or she'll be 91 in July, and she still loves me. Whatever story you have to tell, you don't know who you're going to impact or how. Yeah. From the woman who woke up from the coma, I can't blame that on my poem. I can blame that on God. But the timing is God's. The words were God's. I was asked to write a poem about how I feel about my mother. I didn't know this woman in Brazil. I didn't even know her daughter when I wrote that poem. Yeah. You never know what your story is going to do for somebody else. And every one of your stories is important to somebody. Please write them down. Yeah, yeah. I want to close on a note recognizing again, we mentioned her earlier, Phyllis Clements, and the wonderful work that she did. What a beautiful soul she was. She wrote a series of books, Coffee and Conversation, a series of compilations, and in at the end of each one, she would write her final words and her final words to thank some of the authors. And this excerpt that you're going to read is from Phyllis's final book. Uh, it was published after her death. Is that correct? Um, it was published before her death. She published this book, but we didn't get the actual copy of until the book after she until after she passed. Okay. So I didn't know what was written in it. And when I talked earlier about God winks, God winks is the translation that God gives me so that I can feel the emotion that you're talking about. I tell everybody about God Winks because even with Dr. Spencer's book, Dr. Spencer, he said, I said, you told me you went into the service twice, but you didn't tell me when you came out of the service. And so he said, okay, I'll look that up. And he came back and he says, okay, I, I came out of the service the first time on June 7th, and I came out of the service the second time on October 8th. And I said, thank you, God. He said, you keep t saying thank you, God. What is this thank you, God? I said, June 7th is my birthday, and October 8th is my grandson's birthday. I said, you told me that your mother died. I, I looked it up, and your mother died on July 17th. He said, yes, so what? I said, because July 17th is my mother's birthday and anniversary. Those so God these winks. God winks is what happens. So when I got this book after Phyllis died, I went to the backstory as I was asked to write her obituary. And I was looking for her words. So in this Coffee and Conversation, she says, it is traditional that I include something in the book that talks about what our Coffee and Conversation community is all about. While this is the fifth volume of the book, it is the seventh year of existence for the group. It has truly been amazing. I remember the day back in March of 2013 when I sat at a table in a room of over 300 people and spoke to a woman I didn't know who had this wonderful energy about her. I was drawn to her positivity, and I remember thinking, this is the sign of the universe. 
ask her. So I asked if she would be interested in participating in a women's group, and she said yes. Today, she is the own one of my closest and dearest friends. The Godwinks confirm that she really is my big sister. I've always wanted to find a way to bring people together to share our gifts, wisdom, and love. It has been such a blessing to have met so many wonderful women and developed friendships that are truly heartfelt. The Coffee and Conversation community was created to provide such an environment for women. Now, I didn't know she was writing that story, and I didn't get this book until she passed. And I told you earlier how we met. And here it is in her words. If that's not God, I don't know what is. Yeah. And I thank God every day. This has been an amazing conversation. And you and I didn't plan this. Mm-mm. I went through the books and I just popped my little business card in various spots. I didn't know what you were going to ask me for mm-hmm. or not. Mm-hmm. This is why I say God winks for me works because God sits here and just like the song says, he ordered our steps. This has been wonderful, Miss Jacqueline. I never, I knew that we were going to have an amazing conversation. I didn't know how powerful it was going to be. Thank you so much for being here, for sharing your talent, for speaking your heart to the listeners of Full Circle. And I really appreciate you so, so much. I'm so excited. (laughs) I still feel like a kid in a candy store. And this has been so much fun. And I thank you. And I thank everybody for listening. This is Full Circle Family. Again, this has been a powerful conversation. If you've missed any part of it, don't forget you can find it on the Miss Wanda's Full Circle Radio podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Don't forget the live episode. So today's episode will drop on Tuesday at noon. Live episodes drop every Tuesday at noon. And if you want to support Miss Jacqueline and some of her work, you can find her books on Amazon. Again, it's a wake up call, a father, a daughter and three strokes from out of the shadows, doubt in the service of faith. We're all the same poems and short stories about everyday stuff. Open and connected poems and short stories that keep you grounded. And I've got my wings, poems and short stories that shaped my life. I will post uh, pictures and all of that stuff on the Full Circle page. Make sure you're following Full Circle 975 on Instagram and Facebook. And if you want to tell your story, don't be afraid. Start writing it down. Start sharing it with your friends and family. Whatever you need to do to get that story out, because we all have a story. No matter what you're thinking, you might not think that your story is impacting someone, but your story needs to be told and it needs to be heard. And you never, ever know who you're going to impact. So with that, show love to everyone you meet, and I'll see you next week. Peace. This has been Full Circle. Follow our Facebook page at Full Circle. 97.5